approach a, an average American, particularly an average young American who's educated, and you tell them about your relationship with God, they'll say, oh, that's great. I'm so happy for you. So wonderful. Now, I also demand that you respect my view. My view is that there's nothing, and life is meaningless, and there's nothing. Respect me. By the way, I'm really struggling with life, right? This is where we are today in Western civilization. And I was reminded of that by, you know, God is watching us from a distance. That was that song. Just, uh, I don't know why it's stuck in my brain. I'm thinking, why am I even telling this stupid song? It's a lie. It's literally such a lie. But these things sink into your head, and they help our poor society to devolve away from God. And so I want to go back and, and address that. God is not distant. wrote down a few verses about that. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Psalm 34, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Acts 17, They should seek God. He is actually not far from each one of us, says Paul. James 4, 8, Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. What was Jesus' message? What, was, what did John the Baptist say? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is right here. It's at hand. It's near. Jesus said, repent. The kingdom of God's at hand. Right? The apostle said that. Right? God is not far from us. He's not at a distance from us. That's totally a lie. That's a lie. And these lies get into our hearts and our heads, and they entice us away from God and toward problems. Every problem that we have has a spiritual component. Every real problem that we have. Is a spiritual component. Now, every problem we have may also have a physical component. If you have a headache, there's probably a physical component to that. You might take an aspirin to address that part. But if you have a headache long enough, it might become a spiritual battle. Your spirit might become depressed, right? Do you have problems with your marriage? Well, there's, there's a spiritual component, I promise you, to all of life's problems. Every problem that we have, there's a spiritual component to every problem that we face, right? Do you have problems at work? Is it because you're not performing? It be a spiritual problem. Is it because your boss is really against you? You might be in a spiritual battle. But whatever it is, it's spiritual, right? There may be a physical component to your problem, but there's definitely always a spiritual component to any real problem that you have. What about disease, growing older? Is that not a spiritual battle? I think it is. What about not walking with God? You don't attend church. No real relationship with God. Oh, well, that would be a spiritual problem, right? Every problem that we have is, is a spiritual problem. And spiritual battles must be waged with spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. The first piece of armor, belt, God is not watching us. Where is God? Is he watching us? What's he like anyway? Leave us? What's, what, who is this God, right? This is what we've been studying in Exodus 34. And I'm going to continue our study today because that's what I'm teaching the youth. And what I teach with the youth, I share with you all. If we go to Exodus 34, let me remind us of the verses that we had studying. We took a, a small hiatus, but uh, there was a series which is now concluded, and it was based on God's own description of himself. He kind of explains who he is to Moses. <clears throat> and we remember reading in Exodus 34. Now, I am reading out of a new translation called the Berean Study Bible. It's sort of reminiscent of uh, the, the NIV but uh, the word order may be closer to the NAS, but bear with me. 
We read that the Lord descended in, uh, what is it, Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. That would be a whole sermon in and of itself. Verse 6, then the Lord passed in front of Moses and called out, the Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving ocean, faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin. Yet he'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so we've been studying about who God is. We've got to because our society, whether you like it or not, whether you participate in society or not, whether you read the newspaper or not, whether you read the National Geographic or not, the philosophies of our society are embedded in the conversation of it. And you check out at the grocery store, their conversations are going to either be informed by our culture or by the Bible. When we interact with them, our conversations are going to be either informed by what we see on the news or by the Bible. And so we've got to make sure to saturate or saturate ourselves with who is God? What is he like? And that's why I chose to share with you what I'm uh, sharing with the youth on Friday nights which is literally, who is God? What is he like? And he describes himself here. What a, what a description. We only spent, I think it was just four weeks. We could spend years on just these alone, just these descriptions alone. This is who God is. And we have spent a good amount of time on, on these, uh, these right here. Knowing God is life-changing. And you look at Moses' response as God explains who he is. In verse 8, Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. Oh, Lord, he said. We're going to get to what he says there in a moment. But he worshipped. His first response is to worship. Worship the Lord. When he, he heard the Lord describing what kind of a person, what kind of a personality he is, he bowed down and worshipped. What a great response. That's that's the natural response to knowing God. right? And so... We need, to, we need to share who God is with each other and with the people that we encounter in our culture and society. Now, they might respond, oh, that's good, that's me, but they still have problems, and they still need to hear who God is. Whether they accept him or not is really up to them. But whether we share him or not, it's not up to us. We have got to share our God with those around us. And so what we're going to do this morning is continue examining uh, these things, we're going to continue to examine who God is like. I'm going to go through some of the attributes of God. Before we do so, I want to just look to the Lord in prayer. I know we open in prayer, but I don't know. I, see, I always feel like that prayer too. So let's just do that just in case we have some tiny bit that's unprayed for. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your love. God, thank you so much for sending your son. God, thank you so much for revealing who you are consistently, repeatedly, through history, for showing us who you are, what you are like. You're loving thousands of generations. You persist in that love, Lord, but you also are just and will judge the world, Lord. So we just thank you so much for all of these descriptions you give us of yourself and your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, just be with us this morning. Help, help my words to be your words and uh, my heart and my mind to be uh, stayed by you and uh, fixed on you, and I might faithfully share you would have for us. Too. So yeah, today we're going to 
examine some of the attributes of God that I've been sharing with the youth. These things are very relevant. These things are more relevant than anything I can imagine. Knowing who God is is about as relevant as anything I can imagine. And I want to hopefully demonstrate that to you uh, over the course of this, this <laughs> whatever half hour or so we've got left. So, um, but it's super relevant. Knowing who God is is extremely relevant. Some people, you know, would call this theology. And some people might be intimidated by it. Theology, that sounds, you know, theological, right? You would, you'd, that's, a, that's an ology kind of, that sounds like an, a sophisticated word. You know, call it what you will, right? You know, so there have been Christians through the ages who have developed uh, technical terms and jargon. You know, if that's not for you, just just means something. It's just fancy words that mean something, right? And so if that's not for you, great. But if it is for you, great. There's lots of technical terms because there's, Lots of interesting aspects about God that we can learn. But what I want to jump into first is one of the attributes of God, one of the truths about God that comes right after here that I just find really interesting about God. So Moses immediately bowed down to the ground, worshipped, and here's what he says. He says, Oh Lord, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, my Lord, please go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our iniquity and sin and take our inheritance. So the question one might ask is, what's God going to do here? What is God going to do? In verse 10, And the Lord said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Whoa. I guess the question to be to ask is, Does God have to make a covenant? He didn't have to make a covenant, did he? He wasn't obligated, was he? He's not obligated to make this covenant. Why in the world would he do that? The first attribute of God I want to examine is his freedom. The attribute of God's freedom. And that kind of, you know, God, when you, when you say freedom, you know, God, God has the attribute of freedom. That's uh, you know, what, what does that mean? Freedom from what? Well, America, we have freedom in America. I know what that means. What does that mean? I am free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Right? That's what the Constitution theoretically says. I'm, I'm free to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. There you go. I can do it. Well, there are a couple of quid pro quos. It turns out you can't pursue life, liberty, and happiness if your pursuit infringes on the right of somebody else to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, right? So you can't, my life, liberty, and happiness involves squashing everybody else's. So you don't have that right, right? So we do have freedom, but we have natural restrictions on that freedom, right? We can't, turns out, somebody else's freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. God has freedom. He has freedom very unlike our freedom, but he also has restrictions on his freedom. It turns out, can't do anything it squashes any of his other attributes. So, for example, we know that God is love. Okay, his freedom. He's free to do anything he wants, think anything he wants, be anything he wants, except unloving. He can't be unloving, right? He cannot not love. He is truth. God is truth. That's why the scripture states many times that it's impossible for God to lie. It turns out there are entire categories of things. There's tons of stuff God cannot do. It's physically metaphysically impossible for God to do because he cannot go against his own nature. His nature is loving. His nature is just. He cannot be unjust, right? His nature is truth. He cannot tell a lie. Metaphysically, it's an actual impossibility for him to tell a lie. It's repeated in Scripture a number of times, but that's why. Because his freedom enables him to do anything he wants and be anyone he wants except against his own nature. So it's just like our freedom has natural restrictions, God's freedom has natural restrictions. And so the Lord here, though, I want you to just note 
what he does. He says, the Lord says, behold, I'm making a covenant. Since he can't tell a lie, as soon as these words leave his lips, we could think on that for a minute, but I'm not sure how that happened. But as soon as these words left whatever they left, he's got another restriction. He cannot go against his promise. Think about that. Every time God ever, why would he ever promise anything? That's actually literally a limit on his freedom. Why would he promise promise us something? Because the second he says, I promise to, oh man, I'm obligated forever. It's not, it's much more than obligated. The metaphysical nature of the universe demands his promises will be fulfilled. God cannot not fulfill his promises. His promises to us are more certain than the laws of physics. A bold assertion. Can I demonstrate that? Well, one day we read that the elements will melt with intense heat. Sounds to me like those laws of physics are going to be let go of. We read that right now he's upholding all things by the word of his power. So I guess he'll let go. The laws of physics themselves are not as trustworthy as the promises of our Lord. The promises of our Lord are amazingly trustworthy. So why do we study the attributes of God? Because they are eminently uh, relevant to our lives. Is this not relevant? Right? God can do anything he wants, but he's not obligated to do anything. What happens if you're an angel and you sin? Second Peter 2.4 says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Cast them deep into hell, placing them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. No salvation for angels. Is God obligated to save us? Out of his freedom, free will chose to. That's why we call his freedom God's gracious attribute. The freedom of God is grace. It's grace to us. This is God's gracious attribute. Graciously chose to save us. He's not obligated to save anyone. He chose to become a man. He didn't choose to become an angel and save angels. He chose to become a man, to become a man and save us. So this is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful attribute of God. There's another attribute or aspect of this attribute. Uh, Isaiah 40 says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or informed him as his counselor? Whom did he consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the paths of justice? Well, no one. He defines the paths of justice. He is the wonderful counselor. Right? Himself is totally free of any outside influence. I'm just thinking of parenting because I do a lot of that at times. And uh, we have some little ones around our house who know how to push buttons. And I'm not talking to buttons on the oven. They know how to do that too. But they know how to push her buttons. I don't have any buttons. But she does. She has buttons. And the kids know how to push those buttons. They push her buttons. And upon occasion, they push one that makes her say, grump, you know, grump, 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 stop that, right? It's a wonderful thing to think. God does not have buttons. He is totally free of any outside influence beyond his own. Think about that for just a second. So how many times do you have to commit the same sin against God before he blows his top and says, you want to bet? Squash, right? How many times? Is it number, is it 70 times 7? Because I've probably committed 70 times 7 sins yesterday, right? Think about it. Isn't it wonderful to think? That's why these attributes, the attributes of God are so marvelous. They are so relevant because it's relevant to know that you can't push God to the limit and he's going to say, fine, you want to bet? Blah! Right? He's not going to do that. Isn't that wonderful? Now, he may punish you for your sin, but it's going to be out of righteousness. Right? It's not going to be out of 
out of wrath. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth that you can't push God's button. So these are, that's why I just love studying this kind of stuff. This is why I'm sharing it with the youth, and that's why I'm continuing with the attributes of God this morning, because these kinds of things are relevant. What a relevant study. That's what theology is. It's actually very relevant, but just has technical terms sometimes if you study it with technical books or whatever. So I want to talk about another attribute of God, his omnipotence, because that's an easy one to relate to. Because, you know, we've got, a, we've got a little bit of power, and so we think of God, you know, he's just got a little bit more, right? We've got strong arms, he's just got really big arms, right? That's easy to think of, right? We kind of can imagine, you know, a gigantic arm. In fact, the Bible speaks to us in terms of, like, you know, his, his strong right arm is going to save us and stuff like that. But that's really an understatement. That's really an understatement. Omnipotence is God's enabling truth or God's enabling attribute. It enables him. Um, so I shared with the youth, I, because when I was a teen, uh, Epcot Center opened, and it really made a big impression on me when Epcot opened. I just thought that was the coolest theme park ever. I, you know, My parents got uh, what was the three-season salute pass, which was like just a, a few dollars, and you could go for like three periods of time during the year or something like that. And uh, so I loved Epcot Center. And when Horizons finally opened, I thought it was the embodiment of all that Epcot was. And the Horizons Pavilion on the uh, front entrance sliding door had their motto. And I think they also had it like on a plaque inside. But I remember it on the door, if we can dream it, we can do it. And as you walked inside, the song like would wiggle itself into your brain. If we can dream it, then we can do it. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Had a little children's chorus. And I remember that. I'll probably never forget that because it's the useless things that stick in here. But that's not really true of us, right? Okay, I'm dreaming of a whole entire new universe. Uh, sorry, right? We can't. That, that's, just, that's just foolishness. If we can dream it, then we can do it. I understand the sentiment. But think about it. With God... The attribute that enables him to literally do whatever he dreams of. You know, one day, God, you think about it, right? God the Father turns to God the Son and says, hey, you know what I'm thinking? And the Son says, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And they, you know, so together they dream. What about space time? Doesn't that sound like a cool idea? Let's try that. Yeah, boom, there's space time, right? I've got this great idea. Light. Huh. That's a cool idea. Yeah, let's do that. Light, right? How about living creatures? Okay, boom. How about, how about something made in our own image? That's a great idea. Wham, right? With free will, right? His omnipotence is what enables him to literally do whatever he dreams of. But he has wonderful dreams. Wonderful, wonderful dreams. Think of his power. And think of his power and a curse, right? <laughs> He says, cursed is the ground because of you. It will yield thorns. And before he stops speaking, all the plants in the world, thorns come out of them, right? And thistles, there comes a thistle, right? Just to imagine the power of God far beyond uh, what we can imagine. Imagine his power upholding all things. Right now, we read that he's sustaining all things or upholding all things by the word of his power, right? And he's going to one day make all things new. Think of his power in salvation in taking this kind of invisible bank account that we can't see, but we metaphysically know that it's there. And ours has got a really deep negative balance. And so he like ETFs it to like Jesus' account and then transfers his balance to us. We've got this giant positive balance now. Wow, right? That's 
That's a lot of power. And so this is relevant to us in so many ways. But let me just read Hebrews 4, which says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, that we may obtain grace or mercy and we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You could preach a whole sermon on that verse. But does God have the power to help you? Yes, he does. Right? This is relevant because we can, so much more can be said, but when you boldly go before the throne of grace, you're going before the throne of someone who has the power to help. Right? He has the power to help. So yes, absolutely. I guess the question you might ask is, does God want to help you? Well, let's go to another attribute. How about we talk about God's attribute of love? truth that God is, what is love? A lot of these attributes are actually hard to describe, like hard to define these kinds of things. First John says, God is love. And John 15 gives us a little bit of a a better definition. We read, greater love is no one than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. So that's getting closer to it. And then John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him They'll not perish, but have everlasting life. Love is giving yourself for the good of someone, right? Love is seeking the highest good, the holiness of the object of your love. Giving yourself, and God gave himself for us. Love is a verb. If you wanted to pick out the key word, maybe, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it's a small one. For God so loved the world. Oh, loved the world. You don't need to wonder if God loves you. You don't need to wonder if God wants to help you. This controls, right? This, he cannot act in a way that's unloving. He cannot. He does not have the freedom to do that. There are a lot of restrictions upon God, if you think about it. It's kind of mind-blowing, because we ask ourselves, you know, when our kids were like, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? That's a meaningless question. But it's a meaningful question to ask, can God act in an unloving way? And the answer is no. He also cannot act in an unjust way. Much more could be said. But I want to talk now about, so love is God's motivating attribute. Omnipotence is God's enabling attribute. I want to talk about God's perfecting attribute, holiness. We go to Isaiah. We will read that when Isaiah was caught up, he hears a song. What's that song? Remember the song? Holy, holy, holy. Right? And then you go to Revelation. And there's that same song. We hear the same song. Holy, holy, holy. It's the golden oldie, right? Holy, holy, holy. What does holiness mean? What does holy mean? It's kind of hard to define, but you wouldn't want to say holiness is the absence of sin. Compare it to like health, right? If you wanted to define health, you wouldn't say health is the absence of sickness. Well, no, health is much more than that, really. And so holiness is much, much more than the absence of sin. Um, Most modern theologians would define holiness as being along the lines of being completely and utterly devoted purposely to the perfections of God. And so we read that the Sabbath is supposed to be holy because it's supposed to be devoted to the Lord, right? The nation of Israel is supposed to be holy because the nation of Israel is supposed to be devoted to the Lord. Christians are supposed to be holy because we are supposed to be devoted to the Lord. Our Lord himself is holy because he's devoted to his own perfection. Just imagine if he weren't. He'd be an, he'd be an idolater, right? So he is, he is completely, as it were, his back is to the rest of the sinful world 
and he faces his own perfections, right? As it were, he is holy. He is holy. And so this attribute is a wonderful, wonderful attribute because it balances all of his other attributes. A, a teacher, uh, one of my favorite teachers, once uh, described holiness and said, without holiness, God's patience would be indulgence, and without holiness, his mercy would be fondness. He'd be fond of one and not another, right? Without holiness, his wrath would be utter madness. Without holiness, his power would be tyranny. He holds us under his thumb. Without holiness, his wisdom would be an unworthy subtlety. He'd be manipulating and tricking us all the time with his wisdom. Just imagine that. God's got the wisdom to make us do anything he wants. His holiness brings all those attributes into a beautiful perfection, a beautiful, wondrous perfection, unlike anything we can imagine because we are born and live in a cursed environment. And that is wonderful, wonderful, and relevant to us today. Is that not relevant? It's relevant because we wonder, is this really the best plan? Is this really God's best plan? You know, philosophers through the ages have asked that. Well, what if there are multiple possible plans? Is this really the best one? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. This is the best plan. We get a hint of that, right? Jesus, in the garden, he read about it. If there's any other way, let this cup from me. Was there any other way? This is the only way. This is the best plan. And that's a huge comfort to us, that we can trust God. This really is the best plan, because it's hard when we're faced with things like the truth that not everyone is saved. Does this blow your mind? This is the best plan, but not everyone is saved. This is the best plan, but the Holocaust, right? There are These are things that we can wrestle with. Do you trust God? His utter utter perfection beyond our comprehension. You can trust his holiness, right? How about that horrible mischaracteristic of justice called the crucifixion, right? That's the best plan. He will be glorified. He will really be glorified. This whole plan is going to really glorify him. So holiness, God's attribute of holiness. So finally, I want to think about uh, another attribute that is a wonderful attribute of God, the truth that he is infinite and eternal. I shared this with the youth uh, on Friday. Infinite and eternal. God is infinite and eternal. And this, I must admit to you, is the one that blows my mind. Turn to Psalm 90. Where is Psalm 90? Psalm 90. And so we read in Psalm 90, Lord, you've been a dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting Two, everlasting, you are God. This is a real mind blower. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everything we know has a beginning. We ourselves have a beginning. We celebrate it. It's called birthday. We have a beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. God cannot celebrate a birthday. Well, we can celebrate the incarnation, but he was around before that because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in John 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14, right? And so we can celebrate the incarnation, that's called Christmas, but God doesn't have a beginning. He has a perspective that's really, really big. Everything we know, except for God, has a beginning. The world has a beginning. We have a beginning. Everything that comes about has a beginning, and much of it has an end. So I'm seeing the end of some trends in Western culture that 
aren't necessarily good, but I'm kind of saddened by what's replacing them, right? It's coming to an end. Most, most of what we know has a beginning and an end, but God doesn't. But there's one way, this is going to blow your mind. Well, this blows my mind, in which we're half like God, because we have a beginning being. Once created, we do not have an end. Each of us has some part of us that's not physical, that's not this body. When this body perishes, there's a part of me that will live on and will be with Jesus, the soul, spirit, immaterial part of man. We will live forever with the Lord. To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have a beginning, but we don't have an end. We'll still be able to celebrate birthdays because we we started. God doesn't celebrate birthdays, but but we will never have an end. Now, how is that relevant? relevant. How is that relevant? Is that relevant? I think it is. It's hugely relevant. In 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we read some teaching about the return of the Lord rapture church, and it concludes at the end of uh, 17, it says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's a great encouragement. Encourage one another with these words, because we're going to always be with the Lord. And so when you put that into perspective, Right, you put this into perspective, we have a beginning in time. God didn't have a beginning, right? He starts way out there, and then we're born. And in Psalm 90, in fact, it continues. Where is, where is it? In, if you've got Psalm 90 open, you've got verse 10. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we're strong. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for they quickly pass, and then we fly away. So, you know, how long is 70, 80 years? You know, maybe that long? I don't know. Pretend it's that long. It doesn't matter, right? We start here, we die here, but we don't perish, right? We will live forever with the Lord if we're saved. Now, at that point, if, we, if we're born, born here and we die here, and that's 70 or 80 years long, during that 70 or 80 year period, you've got a limited time. If you're in Psalm 90 still, look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present a heart of wisdom. Number our days because you got 70 or 80 of them. Maybe more. Modern medicine can keep you alive as a vegetable up to a pretty good age. But this life will come to an end for all of us. So number your days. If you don't know the Lord, know the Lord. Because today, because once that little you know, line is gone, your fate will be determined. You'll either always be with the Lord or you will always be apart from the Lord, right? But we will continue. Our timeline continues out to the parking lot, you know, through the doctor's office, all the way across 436, you know, out to the coast, across the ocean, keeps going, right? This is just a tiny little bit, just a tiny, tiny little bit. And so how is that relevant to us in every way possible, right? How is it not relevant? It's relevant in every way, right? So teach us to number our days. 2 Peter 3 has some uh, neat little conclusions. It teaches about the day of the Lord, but just the way he, um, he concludes there in verses uh, 13, he says, In keeping with God's promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And we can as well, right? We are as well looking for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And he says, Therefore, beloved, as you anticipate these things, make every effort to be found at peace, spotless and blameless in his sight. 
Yeah, just, just a short little time. Spotless and blameless, right? And consider also that our Lord's patience brings salvation. So we are singing, you know, come Lord Jesus. We know his patience brings salvation. Share the gospel with those around you, right? Is it worth it? Yes, is it worth it? Will you be ridiculed? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. <laughs> this is where Peter uh, explains that he doesn't, uh, that Paul's writings are uh, too complicated here. And he writes about this in some parts of his letters are hard to understand, he writes. But then in verse 17, therefore, beloved, since you already know these things, be on guard so that you will not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure standing. So this is, these truths give us a secure standing. So I've just given you a crash course in a teeny tiny bit of theology. It gives you a secure standing, right? This is why I continue to teach uh, a theology to the youth group because it's literally the most relevant thing I can think of. And since you know these things, be on your guard so that you'll not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure standing, right? So we all must be on our guard. And so keep encouraging one another with these words. Uh, Keep sharing Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights these words. Keep sharing on Sunday night and Monday night Bible studies via Zoom. Keep sharing these things with one another, and it'll help us to be on our guard and not fall from our secure standing. So we learned about oops, freedom, God's gracious attribute, omnipotence, God's enabling attribute, love is God's motivational attribute, holiness is perfecting attribute, his timeless attribute. And so this is uh, my encouragement for us today. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the truths that we can read about you. Thank you that you are truly unsearchable. We can dig and learn and worship and never exhaust your awesomeness. Lord, we thank you that you are that awesome. We are grateful that you are a, a God who is far beyond all we can think, but yet you're a God who shows. Lord, we pray that you would encourage one another, uh, each of us in our hearts as we just continue to walk with you and pray that you'd strengthen our walk with these thoughts of yourself, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.